Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Dr. Patricia Fernandez Puroto, postdoctoral researcher at the University of Geneva and teaching at the Geneva School of Social Sciences. Her interests are compassion, conflict resolution, integrated relation and emotions, and I'm trying to convince her she should add kite surfing to that list. So welcome, Patricia. Thank you, Laura. I'm really happy to be here today. Me too. I'm happy to have you here to indoctrinate you into kite surfing. But let's just jump in because I want to start with one of the papers you produced with some co-authors, which immediately grabbed my attention because it's about, from what I gather, grumpiness after you haven't slept enough. (laughs) So is this paper going to validate me being grumpy after I don't have enough sleep? Like what's it all about? Actually, it's more about how sleep deprivation or lack of sleep can affect our social interactions and more precisely couples conflict because we all have the feeling that of course after a sleepless night where we be in a bad mood we feel less positive emotions and more intense negative emotions which has been validated by uh, science so far but there wasn't any research showing like a causality effect of if we sleep less do we have a more intense conflict with our romantic partners. And this is what we wanted to test. And in this study, we slept deprived half of some couples and others could enjoy a a good night of sleep. That sounds like a nightmare. Like, why did people sign up for this study? You could not pay me enough to voluntarily be sleep deprived and then potentially, I don't know, go on an axe murdering rampage from the sounds of things. Actually, this is a fair point because there are already like somehow bias in the sample that we studied. It was only very satisfied couples that signed in for this uh, research. Mm-hmm. And this was very interesting for us because we saw already effects on very satisfied couples. Some preliminary negative effects of sleep deprivation. So the question is now, what about those who are already in, in conflict or experience tension? Maybe the sleep deprivation or lack of sleep will fuel the conflict. And this is why I think it's, it wasn't our plan to have like very satisfied couples, but we end up with a sample like this. And it's still very interesting to see that independently of your relationship or the satisfaction about your relationship, you still have some troubles when you are not paying attention to some basic needs, such as just having a good night of sleep. So even a perfect relationship can have problems if someone isn't sleeping enough. Exactly. Yeah. And were there any implications of this? Is it just that you then set them all away with the homework, sleep more and your problems will go away? At least in my research, I didn't go that far, like giving implications or recommendations. But so somehow I think it's also important to pay attention, just like to be cautious about if I'm having like a conflict with someone that I love, it could be like also someone that is not my romantic partner. And if I didn't sleep enough, maybe I should just be cautious that my emotions will be different, that I may have experienced more 
stress and like higher cortisol levels. That was what we tested. And just being cautious about this, you may influence the way you will handle the conflict. And do you think this sort of relates to our own self-talk as well? If we haven't had enough sleep, we might be meaner to ourselves because of these emotions too? I don't know so far any research on that, but actually this could be a very nice point uh, to test, of course, like whether sleep deprivation impacts our self-love or self-compassion towards ourselves. And if I had like more time, it would be definitely <laughs> that I will do all that. <laughs> Because it's very interesting. Yeah, maybe. We know it's, uh, lack of sleep is affecting our emotions, making more intense negative emotions and less intense positive emotions. Also affecting our way to recognize emotions in others, our inhibition to aggression. There are many factors that are impairing our social functioning after sleep deprivation. Mm. This is why I centralize sleep as the most important thing in my life. My whole schedule revolves around when I sleep next. And so I'm clearly never going to never gonna be angry towards the romantic partners that I'm hearing here. But, <laughs> but, but speaking of emotions, I understand that your PhD work, your doctoral research actually had something to do with emotions as well. So what were you actually studying? Because you finished, I guess, last year or something like that, right? Yeah. So what were you actually studying for your PhD? So in my PhD, I wasn't anymore like um, eliciting conflicts by depriving people of sleep, which was good. <laughs> I decided to go in the other direction and try to find interventions influencing our emotions and looking at if these interventions can help to promote conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. So basically, I focused on compassion-based meditation, which is a way of Meditation in which people are asked to visualize different kinds of uh, targets and send benevolent wishes to these people, such as, may you be happy, may you be free of suffering. And you have to also pay attention to your bodily feelings, sensations. And somehow the literature so far has shown that compassion-based meditation promotes pro-social behavior, such as helping, also decreases stress, increases well-being. But there were few, only very few research linking compassion-based meditation to better social relationships and more precisely in the context of conflicts. So this is why I focused really on compassion-based meditation and I try to observe whether people who never experienced compassion-based meditation before were more able to handle a conflict after being trained or were less aggressive towards a group or felt closer towards someone that they dislike. And this was the main core of the thesis. And so does that relate to Christian Neff's work on compassion? Somehow, yes. Like Christian Neff's work is more about self-compassion Mm-hmm. And how we treat ourselves with self-kindness mm-hmm. and how this is related to many other aspects of our lives. She has worked, I think, with depression, but also eating disorders. And in our training, the difference with her research somehow is that we not only focus on self-compassion, but we also focus a lot on compassion to others. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. There was a part of um, the training in which participants were trained to elicit self-compassion, but also to elicit compassion to others, visualizing different people and sending these benevolent wishes to those people. And we have one study in which we studied the effects of compassion-based meditation on our relationship with someone that we dislike. And importantly, during the training, we never mentioned the disliked person to our participants. They had to train their compassion towards a lot of people, but not explicitly towards the disliked person. And we tested their emotions and our feelings of closeness before the training and after the training towards the disliked person. And what we found is that after the compassion-based training, people felt closer or more similar to the disliked person than before, even though it wasn't targeted. Did you capture who these disliked people were? Like, were they family members? Were they people from different types of groups? Were they politicians? Like, was there any tendency there? Yeah, we asked someone that they knew. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure it was at least personally. So it couldn't be a leader or some famous person that they hate. Mainly it was colleagues sometimes. It was also family members indeed, neighbors, ex-boyfriends, ex-girlfriends. Yeah, I think these were the main categories of the disliked persons. Mm -hmm. And what is interesting is like one third of our participants was still interacting with this disliked person in their daily lives. So the way that compassion can help somehow maybe uh, is that it allows you to somehow live better with this disliked person. So if we have a colleague we don't like, for example, we can go away, we can do this meditation where we're basically sending them good vibes and then we'll find it easier to get along with them in future. This would be the ideal plan. It depends uh, on on some individual factors, uh, if the person is ready also to send benevolent wishes to this person. And this is, I don't know if I'm allowed to speak about personal experience, but I went also under the compassion-based meditation. And at mm-hmm. first it wasn't easy to send benevolent wishes to the disliked person because I don't know, it, you just don't feel it. And what I experienced is that by sending to other people, there is at some point a step, and also we did have this for the research as well, in which you send benevolence and compassion towards a lot of people, including all living beings. Mm-hmm. And somehow at that point, it means that you are also sending to this person, to this disliked person. So it's an indirect way to send benevolent wishes without explicitly bringing to the mind this like person. And that may work, but it takes time. It's not easy. And I won't say that it's the idea's solution because it really depends on many factors. But at least the research was quite promising regarding this type of relationship. I can definitely see that Perhaps in the case of this wishing good vibes towards a disliked person, that you would also need to have perhaps 
self-compassion first and healthy boundaries in place. Because for example, you know, we'll use an ex-partner because I think a lot of people have ex-partners they don't feel great about, right? And if you're out there wishing them good vibes, you start to melt a bit more perhaps and go, oh, they're not that bad. Then, you know, it's an easy doorway to people like abusers and these poor relationships back into your life unless you have perhaps that self-compassion and those boundaries being like, look, I can wish this person, who they are, like good vibes, but they still belong outside of me and outside of my life. Because I can imagine that will be really a challenge. Yeah, exactly. You are absolutely right. I think, of course, there are some factors to take into account. And if this person has done so much harm to us, maybe it's not ideal and maybe not even ethical to ask to increase compassion for this person. So it really matters, of course, like your own self-compassion first. Yeah, I also studied this in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Because we've done some work with Aaron Helperin, I saw yes, exactly. as well. Mm-hmm. I had a member of his team on the podcast earlier, Adomi. It was a few months ago now, but their team's work is so interesting, especially around hope and compassion for other parties. So you were involved in this as well. I was involved in trying to increase compassion, testing uh, also the compassion-based meditation in Israeli participants and see if there were some changes in attitudes and emotions towards Palestinians. Yeah. And what happened? So we <laughs> like very... You can't just leave it like that. What happened was COVID actually, because oh, it, was no. the, it was at the, the time in which we had the COVID breakdown and it was planned to be an in-person training, in-person study, longitudinal study, and we had to modify everything to make it online training by Zoom. And I don't know, it's difficult to quantify what was the impact of COVID on our results. And actually, we had very weak results regarding the impact of compassion training on emotions and closeness uh, felt throughout Palestinians. Actually, the only effect that we have found is that Israeli participants who underwent compassion training online reported higher levels of closeness toward Palestinians after the training. Mm. So this was already great for us, but it's still to be confirmed because it wasn't significantly different from another group that we used to compare. Like a control group. Like a control group, exactly. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the role of COVID and we did have, now obviously in the English speaking world, we did have a lot of messages of like, this is where we all come together. Like this is a great unifier. So maybe there was underlying messages of compassion, at least in theory, in those more general broadcasts that could have skewed your research. So maybe everyone was feeling more compassionate. Maybe I'm being optimistic though. Yeah, no, and there is still research that is arriving so far from uh, this very interesting period because of course, it also raises the questions of common identity. Like we were all facing the same threat and including in those contexts of conflict, Israelis and Palestinians were facing COVID. They were in the same group at some point. There are also some group dynamics that changed at that time in, for instance, Israel, because another group like the ultra-Orthodox, there were more reluctant to apply the rules to prevent COVID outbreaks. 
It's like the evangelicals and stuff in the US. They're like, oh, this is all a conspiracy, blah, blah, blah. We're not going to wear masks, blah, blah, blah. So kind of a similar thing going on. I'm not sure it was linked to conspiracy, but it was more linked to, I think they have some rituals or traditions and they are like very numerous families. And so they didn't want to follow the rules at that time. And there were more a threat to others. Yeah. That's really challenging. So it needs more and more um, elaboration, more research on that. But I think there is already a paper on that topic, on how the social dynamics change in the context of a conflict when you suddenly have a new threat and that puts everyone on the same level. I mean, it's like when people talk about if we had an alien invasion, that would be the only thing that would get the nations of the earth together. So COVID was like the alien invasion. Uh, yeah, that's a, the that's a question. Was yeah. it exactly like our common enemy and did it somehow, at least for a short period of time, bring us all together? Yeah. yeah. Other than the Hollywood actors singing about it. And so, I mean, you mentioned that compassion was your primary intervention as far as emotions. Did you look at any other emotions in conflict as part of your doctoral thesis or as part of other work? Yeah, I also looked to another emotion-based intervention, which is cognitive reappraisal, which is how we can reinterpret a situation in order to change our emotions. Um, can you give an example? Yeah. For instance, you can be angry because you just missed the bus, and you can be angry uh, towards yourself, but you can just evaluate the situation differently like you can think okay maybe I have more time to actually work or I will do my sports today okay no matter I will finish a little bit later today so it's just perhaps there's going to be a bus crash and this has actually saved my life so I'm grateful and actually we do a lot of time when you think about it it's very frequent that we use this technique like cognitive reappraisal to change our emotions at that moment or imagine someone who you are like you sent a message to a friend and this person is not responding you can be angry at that person but you can also think okay maybe she doesn't have the time to reply maybe she didn't see her phone I don't know but plenty of reasons why the person is maybe she's kite surfing maybe kite surfing. <laughs> yeah so it's it's actually a very common technique and has been studied quite a lot so far. And we wanted to look at this because it was an intervention that was already tested in the context of conflict and has shown some benefits. For instance, in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, people who are trained to reappraise also experience less support for aggressive policies and more support for conciliatory policies toward Palestinians. And what we wanted to see was to observe how compassion-based meditation differs from represent training. Do they have the same benefits or are they different? So we had two studies in which we compared both. And it seems like somehow cognitive reappraisal changes uh, some outcomes of conflicts that compassion doesn't change. Cortisol levels, for instance, we have found evidence that represent training decreases cortisol levels while compassion doesn't change them. 
It's really interesting because I guess what I think about, you know, this bodily experience of an emotion, you know, you've mentioned cortisol. I'm thinking short term unless I have that same emotion over and over again. Whereas I guess, and I'm not an expert on compassion, obviously, but when I think about compassion and this compassion-based meditation you've been describing, my hunch would be that it would be for longer-term results, you know, because you're kind of doing that inner work to have a more compassionate approach to life in a longer-term sense. So it just kind of seems like, for me, as a non-expert in this field, that there's some kind of time element perhaps as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think maybe there is an effect of time that we couldn't control because also we have short interventions of compassion. It was five weeks and generally it's eight weeks at least to have like full training. But also we, indeed, we measured our variables just after the training and maybe to see, to observe the, all the efforts of compassion, you need more time. And this needs to be, again, investigated to be certain what are the long-term effects of compassion-based meditation and what are the long effects of appraisal and do they differ or not. But there are research, interestingly, saying that compassion-based meditation has an ingredient of reappraisal. Mm. Like you are also training your mind to be more flexible and changing its interpretation of the people you are visualizing. Fascinating. It's really it's very intertwined. Yeah. It's like with the example I gave before of an ex-partner and you start sending them good vibes and then you have that melting. And the melting is related to the reappraisal because you're reappraising what they've done and how you feel about them and all of that kind of stuff going on as well. Now, I want to talk about another bit of your research because actually the way I came across your profile is that Olga Komeki, who was your PhD supervisor, tagged me in a post about some research that you had done. And I was like, oh, who's this? Who's this Patricia lady? And it was about work you'd done on some kind of pro-social intervention that talked about the future, perhaps. So what was that all about? Okay, so that was about what are the functions of our future thinking ability? Because we are all aware that we are able to mental time traveling, which is, I think, amazing ability that we have so we can imagine ourselves in 10 years and we can imagine yeah. ourselves back in the past as well not the dinosaur past also the dinosaur past but also in our own personal past to relook at things yeah we are able to relieve things are able to imagine like super uh close future like in one hour but also as you said in 10 years Maybe it's not like the reality, but we are able at least to create these images in our mind. And there are many functions of future thinking so far that were discovered. And one of them, well, like one researcher, Brendan Gesser, he was suggesting that uh, maybe it's also linked to more prosocial behavior, like to uh, be able to think about your own future. And the way it's argued is that somehow, because we are able to create images in our mind, these are maybe the same brain regions that are able to create the perspective of someone else. Like when we are um, empathic or we want to take the perspective of someone else, we are also recruiting these brain regions 
to imagine what is going on on the mind of someone else. So it's like, you know, we use the example of we can imagine ourselves 10 years from now. Really, that person that we're imagining is not us today, but we're able to project our feelings and our thoughts and our desires into this person. And we use this same skill with other people and imagining who they are and what they want. Yes, there are some research arguing that we are using these same constructs, the same processes to project ourselves in the future and to project into others' minds. And so the idea was, okay, if this is true, could we actually elicit future thinking to people and check afterwards if they are indeed more pro-social, if they are helping more the others. And so this is what we did. We asked half of our participants to project themselves into the future, like to imagine there's many events that happen to them in the next year. And the other half has to name uh, animals as fast as they can, because the idea was to just have kind of the same task in terms of duration and fluency, because also for the future thinking, they had to give the greater number of future events. And then they, they had to play a game in which we said that they need to have the greatest number of points. And we didn't tell them at all that we were looking at how many times they will help someone else because they were paired with someone else playing also the game and this person was blocked. And we were actually observing how many times our participants were able to unblock the other participant. And we found very strong effects that actually people who were in the future condition were more helpful. It brings to mind that strategy where you ask yourself, if something upsets you, you ask yourself, will this matter in 10 minutes, in 10 months, in 10 years? And when you think about yourself in 10 years, they're like, they're not even going to remember this happening. Like they're clearly not going to care about it. And so this kind of distancing effect, right? So I wonder if that's related, this idea of like future self and whether it's really compassionate, like putting yourself in other's shoes or whether it's just like you're in the mindset of oh, it doesn't really matter. Like it's just not a big deal if I help them out. It'd be really curious to yeah, disentangle those. Um, and I know there is a research at least in couples conflicts asking them when they're in a conflict to reflect on their future with their, their partner. Mm-hmm. And actually it helps to resolve the conflict. Nice. Nice. It's very mediating, right? It's like where it's not you against me, it's us against the problem. And when you centralize the relationship as the thing you're looking after, whether it's now or in the future, yeah. it helps people get that perspective. So with this future thinking study, were there any differences between the participants? Like, do we all do things in the same way? Um, so what we measured in terms of individual differences was the ability in general to travel in time, like in the past, but also in the future, and in general, their pro-social behaviors. And what was very interesting is that we found a link between people who were very prone to travel in time positively, past or future, they were also more pro-social in their daily lives. 
So it also goes into the direction of the behavioral results. So if I imagine going into the future of the past to help somebody, I'm probably helping people in my daily life as well. Yes, and not necessarily imagining helping someone, but just traveling in time positively because it was like a questionnaire that was only assessing the positive mental time traveling. But yeah, apparently it's linked, at least in our research. So like nice people are consistently nice no matter what time they're in. Maybe, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And what are you working on now? What's in the future for you? Because we're time traveling. Yeah, so I worked all along so far with adults. And now I have a project in Canada with kids, with children. And I want to observe the levels of self-compassion and compassion to others. And I want to link this to their well-being, psychological well-being, how if they are less anxious, if they are very self-compassionate, for instance, or they feel a lot of compassion to others, but also to social well-being, how they are accepted by their peers. So this is the next step for me. And I think if we find that compassion to others and self-compassion are key for our well-being at young ages, I think it would be so nice to be able to implement some self-compassion and compassion to others ingredients in schools. So that would be like the ultimate goal. I love that. Future thinking displayed perfectly here. (laughs) Incredible. And so taking all of this together, it sounds like we've all got some homework in that we need to make sure we sleep enough that we're practicing compassion-based meditation, that we're reappraising things positively, and that we're thinking back on good times from the sounds of things. And then we'll have great relationships. So is that our homework from you? Are you assigning us this homework with Yeah, I, I would definitely say that, yeah. We, at least we should try and we will see, but I hope there are no adverse effects. <laughs> oh my God. We never know, of course, with research. But yeah, I think definitely it's, To be cautious about our needs in terms of sleep is essential. I really believe that compassion-based meditation could be a great tool and self-compassion as well for our social relationships. And finally, yeah, I guess we should really train our ability of mental time traveling and if possible, to be positive. Yeah. Mm. Well, Patricia, thank you so much for joining me today. And for those who are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you? You can find me in the website of the University of Geneva. All right. Well, I'll make sure I include the link to the website in the episode description. And for everyone else, until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.